welcome to the Readings Podcast, a fortnightly celebration of books. In today's episode, Charlotte Wood interviews Helen Garner about her third volume of Diaries. It's an account of a woman fighting to hold on to a marriage that is disintegrating around her, living with a powerfully ambitious writer who is consumed by his work, and trying to find a place for her own spirit to thrive, she rails against the confines. At the same time, she is desperate to find the truth in their relationship, and the truth of her own self. This is a harrowing story, a portrait of the messy, painful dark side of love lost, of betrayal, and sadness, and the sheer force of a woman's anger. But it is also a story of resilience and strength, strewn with sharp insight, moments of joy and hope, the immutable ties of motherhood, and the regenerative power of a room of one's own. Before we start, a quick reminder. As this is a recording of an event held live via the internet, there's been some impact on the sound quality of the episode. And now, here's the host of the event, Readings Programming Manager, Christine Gordon. Welcome, everybody. Welcome. My name is Christine Gordon. I'm the Programming Manager for Readings. And on behalf of Readings and on behalf of Text Publishing, I am delighted to welcome each and every one of you here. Often when I'm setting the scene for something like this, when I want to take us out of our lounge rooms and out of our bedrooms and kitchens, I try and get us all to imagine that we're in a theatre and certainly there's enough people here tonight to fill a theatre, to fill the Melbourne Town Hall. Or I try and get us to imagine that we're in the Readings Carlton shop or squashed down the back there between the poetry and the self-help books, gathered like a sort of a community of readers and writers, people that have imagination right right there as part of their lives. But tonight, tonight, I think we should do something a little different. Tonight, what I want you to imagine, and I think this will be easy because anyone that has read any of Helen Gardner's diaries will know that the one thing that Helen does on a very regular basis is meet a girlfriend meet someone that she really cares about in a bar and she settles in for a good matter. And that's what I want you to imagine tonight, that you've gone down the stairs into one of those bars that is dimly lit, you've made your way to the bar itself and you've got yourself, in honour of Helen, a martini and you've taken it to a table where it's lit by candlelight and you've settled in and you're looking around at all the other people in this bar And you're delighted to see them all because you know that they are fans of Helen and that they are fans of Charlotte. And you know that everybody in this bar, as you sip that first glorious sip of your martini, is readers. All of you in this one space are readers. How extraordinary. But while we take our little sip I want us all to take some time out of our day to also reflect that wherever we are in Australia, we're living on land that's not ours, on land that's not been ceded. And it seems to me that it's a great honour each night as I hear on Zoom to be able to acknowledge the traditional owners of this land, to acknowledge the First Nations people. But I do believe deeply and honestly, that actually just acknowledging our First Nations people in the context of this is not enough. It's not enough in 2021. It actually seems to me that we need to do more than send our respects to those First Nations people, to those leaders, 
to all of those people that have made a way for us to understand the country that we live in, you know, such broader terms so that we can understand the rivers and the mountains, so that we can understand our history. I reckon we've all got to send not only our respect but also our gratitude. And so on behalf of all of you here, on behalf of all of you in this crowded bar, I want to say I'm speaking from the Kulin Nations and I spend my respect and my gratitude to the First Nations people. So here we are in this crowded bar and just, just ahead through the candlelight and through those heads of people, we can see two friends, two writers, two women that have won so many awards. But actually tonight what I want you to imagine is that you are privy to something quite special. You're privy to eavesdropping on two friends that are talking about the nature of writing and the nature of remembering. Let's make Charlotte and Helen incredibly welcome. Thank you, Chris. How lovely to be here. I am going to acknowledge the land from which I speak tonight. I'm in Sydney on Gadigal, Wongal country in a place traditionally known as Bullanaming, which is also known now as the Marrickville area of Sydney. And I do pay my respect and my gratitude to the Gadigal and Wongal elders of the past and present and to any First Nations people here tonight. So, Helen, I'm just thrilled to be here, as you know. Um, welcome to this large and adoring audience of yours. And thank you not only for this potent and unnerving book, but for all your potent and unnerving work, which I have loved since the beginning and which has taught me so much about not only about writing but about living. I'm going to be very brief with my introduction of Helen tonight so we can get into the chat. But Helen is the author, as you all know, of at least 19 books of fiction and nonfiction, as well as screenplays, reviews and outstanding long-form journalism. She is the winner of some extremely prestigious awards, including the International Wyndham Campbell Literature Prize, the Melbourne Prize and the Australia Council Award for Lifetime Achievement in Literature. And tonight, of course, it is my great pleasure to dive with Helen into a big meaty chat about her latest book, the third volume of her diaries, which is called How to End a Story. So, Helen, big welcome to you and thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thank you, Charlotte. I want to start by asking about the diary as a literary form. And I, I wondered if you are an avid reader of other people's published diaries and journals. No, not particularly. Actually, I was asking myself that the other day. And I thought, what diaries have I actually read over all the years? And it's not, not a hell of a lot, actually. Of course, they're the ones I've snooped on when I, when I lived in um, group houses and everybody snooped on everyone's diary. Well, not everyone, but, you know, I did sometimes and was snooped on. But uh, Virginia Woolf's diary is, is the one that uh, probably the first one I ever read that uh, seemed completely wonderful and marvellous to me. Yeah, it's funny. I can't think of an answer to that question apart from hers. Speaking of Virginia Woolf then, what do you think for yourself and, say, Woolf, what makes a good diarist? 
you know, what is it that that you notice that, you know, another boring diarist might not? Well, to me, the, the secret of it is to is to say what happened rather than there's, there's got to be more what happened, what you saw. There's got to be more of that than there is of what you thought about it. People, people over the years have occasionally shown me diaries, unpublished ones, and they tend to be a bit kind of waffly. I think people people feel that they should write um, sort of noble thoughts in a diary. And, and the flip side of it, of course, is bitchy, gossipy diaries, which you go too far in that direction and it all becomes a bit poisonous and nobody wants to invite you over. There are people, mostly men, uh, a few men that I've known over the years who are famed for being diary keepers, and everybody... People used to talk about how, you know, they didn't like to go to dinner parties or they would watch carefully what they said. But uh, I'm not interested in that that kind of thing. Um, I, I think that a diary to me, and I think this is probably true about Virginia Woolf's too, if I may make so bold, is it's a kind of a, a life raft that you're on and it, it's essential to living your life and understanding what on earth you're doing and what what you're doing to other people and what they're doing to you and what you see in the world around you. That's what I would look for in a diary. I've thought of a diary. I've read Pepys's diary. I've read a bit of Pepys and, of course, um, Boswell about Johnson, but they're not sort of like particularly useful to me. Years and years ago you gave an interview in a book called Making Stories and you, you quoted Philip Larkin as saying the urge to preserve is the basis of all art. Mm. And I wondered how that fed into your diary keeping. I never imagined that I would be publishing those diaries. And even today when, I, when I'm writing the one that I'm keeping now, when I'm actually doing it, I'm never thinking how will this look, uh, who, who can I say this in front of. I, it just doesn't occur to me when I'm, when I'm writing it. And I, I'm glad about that because I suppose that after publishing it I... I, I did wonder if perhaps I'd become, you know, kind of nervous or looking over my shoulder all the time. But it, it's a strange state that you get in when you're writing a diary, I think. And I don't know if everybody feels this about theirs, but you're really um, having a conversation with yourself. I mean, you're you're your first reader and, and your only reader in a lot of the time, I think. I'm presuming, though, in any given day, when you're making your diary entries, I don't know what time of day you do them, you know, a whole lot of things have happened in the day. You've seen a whole lot of things. But what makes a thing worth writing down rather than, you know, letting go past in the great wash of daily existence? Well, that's an interesting question. I don't um, make judgments about about that. When I pick up the pen, I, I, I tend to write first thing in the morning when I wake up. I usually write it sitting up in bed. You know, I keep it next to my bed and I write last thing at night and first thing in the morning. And sometimes I sit at my desk during the day. But um, I just write whatever comes to mind. You know, the first thing that comes, I, I sometimes think, what did I do? Did I do anything today? Or did anyone say anything to me? And I start some crumb that stayed in my mind and, and sometimes other crumbs emerge while I'm writing down the first crumb. You see what I mean? <laughs> I do. I wanted to know about the, the transition from the private diaries to the public diary mm. and whether, about language really. So the diary entries that we read in these books, 
are very precise in their language. Even, and even if they're very fleeting sort of short glimpses of something, they have a wholeness to them and they, they have, um, there's a certain formality of tone. They're very compressed and um, there's a lot of economy. Is that the way you write it down in the first place? Or like, Is your diary full of crossings out and sort of, um, you know, uh, making things more precise or is that just... See the, the other thing about writing the diaries. It's a form of practice. It's a daily, it's a daily practice. And uh, I mean, not not that I consciously set out to do it that way, but that's how it's turned out. And it's, I, I try to write um, the best way I can. I, I don't. It's not a notebook in that sense. It's not just a scribbled notebook. It's an account of something, of a variety of things. And and I I, I try to I try to write in a way that pleases me you know that I that I enjoy and I it's a way of practicing making a good sentence and you know I do when the when there's crossings out it's usually because I've put a I've attached an adjectival phrase in the wrong part of the sentence but it's not that I'm thinking about it like that I think oh that's an awful sentence I'll just go back and fiddle with that a bit so so I, I I am trying to write the best way I can when I'm writing in the diary because I don't want it to be crap, you know. I want it to be something that if I go and look look at it later, I, it, it might give me some pleasure or I might, yeah. I think that's something that maybe people are not so aware of with writers that it's kind of like every word is important to you, mm. every expression. Mm. And not that you're, well, certainly speaking for myself, they're always write well, but, you know, you're, you're always aware of language and, and the effect of it in any, in emails and whatever. Yes. Yeah, that's true, isn't it? Because really, I don't know about all other writers, but I guess that, that that's the, it's the thing that I love the most and I love doing it. And it's in a way I suppose it's a bit like playing an instrument that you don't want to make an ugly sound. Yes, exactly. That's beautiful. Um, okay, you... You use objects a lot, and we've talked about this before, and you always have used objects. And um, last time we talked on Zoom, I referred to something that you once said in an interview that that sort of really um, helped me write, really. And I found that today, that note that I made at the time. And this is what you said. I think it was about uh, you might have been talking about fiction, the spare room at that point, but you said, I don't feel comfortable unless I've got a lot of objects on the page. And they seem to do an awful lot of work if you can arrange them in the right configuration. They carry a huge amount of energy and meaning and it's just a matter of respecting them, really. Wow, where did I say that's really? January 2009. Thank um, you. But in, in How to End a Story, there are, there are objects all through and they're very potent. Um, you know, I've just picked out a random sample of objects, uh, the leather skipping rope that you get to be for his mm. birthday. There's the blue sofa, of course, which becomes very important. Um, there's an uprooted tree in the garden of the analyst um, and lots and lots of others. So I wonder if you could talk a bit about the work that objects do for you as a writer. Hmm. I'm trying to figure out when you mentioned the uprooted tree in the analyst's front garden and, and there was a tree that was hanging over her fence too that had no leaves on it hmm. and I think when you, if you've been in in um, psychoanalytic psychotherapy as I was for a couple of years over the course of this diary, ordinary things that you notice, um, I mean, once you figure out how to conduct yourself in that relationship, 
uh, a lot of it has got to do with um, the things of life, the things that you've handled or wanted or haven't got. And and a lot of that time, meaning emerges from the mentioning of these things. So you get into that. There's some sort of resonance that, that can emerge from an object that you notice a particular time. And I learned to, to give those full value. And, and I, I see, I, I think the physical world that does, it seems to me to be just radiate meaning the whole time. I mean, I, I'm just terribly interested in, in things and what they tell us and our relationship with things, things that we have to care for or things that we just suddenly see like that cushion that you've got behind you is really attractive to, to my eye because it looks like a whole pile of books or bricks but um I just the fact that walking down the street okay it's it's winter in Sydney and I'm walking down the street to to my analyst's house and and I'm really unhappy and things are going badly for me and I see this tree hanging over the fence. And so I go in there and I don't think anything about the tree. I just notice it. And I go in there, I lie on the couch and and I start to sort of ramble on in the way that you do, which is how, which is a wonderful thing about being in therapy because everything you say turns out to mean something. And I, I said, uh, I saw a tree hanging over your fence and it had no leaves on it. And then there was a long pause. And then I said, I'm feeling pretty leafless myself at the moment. So it's like that, you know. I mean, you see, you you see an object, or you see something that whose state has changed, and it, it seems to um, manifest in the outside world something that's happening inside you. Mm. And and I think that's what um, things do. In who, who was that poet who said, "No ideas, but in things"? Was it William Carlos Williams or someone like that? Mm. And I found that a very um, a very pleasing idea because things contain ideas. You don't have to go for the idea. You can go for the thing and, and take it from there. It's easier to talk about a thing than it is to talk about an idea. And the, the imagery of things stays so starkly in the, in the mind of the reader, I think. Yeah. So, look, everyone watching tonight I'm sure is by now aware that at the centre of how to end a story is the ending, the, the painful ending of your third marriage. And some mm. of this story is pretty rugged and painful reading. And now this morning when we were emailing, you told me something about another recent diary entry one day when you were editing this book. Oh, I remember it vividly. I, I was looking up something in a, in a diary that I kept uh last year or the year before and I was quite shocked to one thing that's really shocking about going back and looking at your own diary is to see how painful things were then which you have since recovered from and and the pain of which has sort of drifted away or been resolved by subsequent events or has just lost its power to make you suffer but I did find putting these books together is really an editing job because all the writing was done back then. And so what I'm doing now is cutting out all the crap and I'm not rewriting. I, I made a deal with myself that I wouldn't rewrite things. I mean, only only if the sentence didn't make sense and I'd fix it so it did. But it's really awful to go back and see mm. your own sort of contortions. So I had a memory 
of the process of editing their diaries has been very often very painful. But I went back looking for something else in this diary and I found an account of, of the, the miserable process and I'd been... I'd written in the diary, this is two two years ago, that in the morning I got up and I just put on my overalls and I went out the back to clean it, to do the chickens, the chooks, and and I was all kind of filthy and dirty. And when I came back and sat down to start work, I thought it's actually quite suitable for me to keep these dirty clothes on because what I'm doing here is some really filthy work. And I thought it's like the work of the diaries, it struck me that it was like mining or, or it was like cleaning out a sewer that hadn't been attended to for 20 years. And when I saw that in the diary this morning or yesterday, when it was, I was really shocked. I thought, my God, is that how I was feeling about it? No wonder I felt so rotten. But I'd forgotten that image, you know, the idea that it was like cleaning out a sewer. And so... Why why was it important to do this mining and this sort of filthy work in, in a in this public way as opposed to doing it in a private way? I wondered if it was not possible to do it in a private way for you. Well, that's that, that's just another way of saying why did you publish your diary, isn't it? Um, which interestingly, not many people have asked me, but I think it's a question that I've asked myself. One thing I've learned from publishing these diaries is how un-unique I am. I, I don't know if everybody goes around the world thinking that they're the last womb on earth, you know, they're, they're sort of most abject and pathetic creature, but I spend a lot of time thinking of, of myself like that and, and, and that comes across in, in the diary, especially going through this sort of awful marriage-ending experience. But I've been amazed um, how how many people have written to me or spoken to me and said, this could be my life, this could be my marriage. And I'm, I'm sort of thunderstruck by that. It it makes because it makes me think that it was worth doing because it makes me feel connected. It makes me feel not alone. Mm. And it connects me with other people in a way that I find extremely heartening and and sort of worth making. It's hard to describe this feeling, but, I mean, people say thank you. Thank you for putting this stuff out there. And, and I, I, it sort of shocks me in a way. I, I, don't, I mean, but it's a good shock and I feel grateful. It doesn't shock me because, because you know, exposing oneself, this is what all writers hopefully do, I think it's, mm. it shows people that they're not alone. And... But I also wondered if if the rigor of the of the editing and the publishing, um, you know, that there's a rigor that must be applied to that that possibly would not be applied, you know, if you're just reading through them or you know mm. trying to do this mining work without some sort of exposure of it at the end of it. Mm. I don't really know what to say about that, Charlotte. I um. Sorry. I, it never would have occurred to me to publish the diaries as books. It was suggested. To, I, I started publishing uh, excerpts from the diaries in the monthly magazine occasionally, and they'd say, oh, have you got any bits of diary? And I'd go, oh, yeah, okay. So I'd just pull together a few um, excerpts, and I enjoyed that, and it was fun, and I had a lot of responses to that. And so then my publisher said, oh, why don't you do, go back and do the books? And then followed three years of torture. <laughs> 
Well, it is it is completely riveting. Now, there's something on the back of this book that this little line of text here that says, in other words, it's not all his fault. Why did you want to put that so kind of prominently on the book? I can tell you why. What I didn't want the book to be was a hatchet job on my ex-husband. And it was important to me to make it clear to a reader and, and to myself as I when I say I was editing it, I wasn't sort of trying to shape the story to make me look better. It, it was more that I wanted my role in what was going wrong and the disaster and the sort of smash and, and wreckage of the marriage. I wanted my role in that to be visible. So I don't know. I sort of wanted to run that flag up the mast. That's a flag on the back. You know, it's sort of saying this this book is not a hatchet job. But I don't know if anybody's convinced by that. But I, I did, when I thought of putting it on the back, I felt really, actually I can't remember now if it was me or my editor, Jane Pearson, who thought up, who thought that up. We were looking for something to put on in the little box because the other two books had a little box. And um one of us came up, I'm going to give the credit to Jane. Anyway, I'm really happy that it's there. So you're flagging there that you had a, you have a part in this. When you see the book now and you see your part in it, mm. what does that make you think? Looking back at reading through the book now, I see again and again and again and again points at which I could have left. I could have said I can't stand this pain any longer. And um, I think anyone that didn't know me uh, would be thinking, my God, why did she put up with this? Why didn't she leave on page 74? Or when this happened, or couldn't she see that and all the rest of it? But th th and that is strangely humiliating to me, that to see the number of times that I um, and in the earlier volumes of the diaries to see the, the points at which I just walked straight off a cliff, <laughs> um, the sort of cliff that uh, I think that the reader of the diary can look out, don't go over there, it's a cliff, don't go over. But over I go, usually when it's to do with love and falling in love. Yeah. So I, I'd like to mention here that fabulous book by Phyllis Rose called Parallel Lives. Five Victorian Marriages. It came out, I think, in about 1982. Phyllis Rose is an American um, academic writer and she did a marvellous study of these five marriages. And she, I believe that the book's been republished lately because I keep seeing, you know, younger feminists in the United States making reference to it. And I went back and looked at it again and it's just a marvellous book. But but she, she makes the point that often... Uh, nobody wants to talk about power mm. in marriage. And, of course, when you think about it, it it's every any marriage is, is a, there's, power, there's power there going one way or the other and sometimes it shifts and sometimes one person gets the other one on the ropes and that's it forever. But um, she says it's interesting how when one gives up some power in order to be in a relationship or when one assumes new power by going into a relationship, it, it's not done to talk about that. 
we talk about love. That's when we start talking about love. And talking of love is not enlightening in this type of situation. So I'd like to recommend this book. It's it's a marvellous book. It's quite a short book. It's very well written and it's because it studies five actual famous people's marriages. What's the title of that again? It's called um, Parallel Lives. Parallel Lives, yes, sorry. Yeah, Phyllis Rose. Mm. You know, the, the power struggle. You know, there there is a big power struggle in this book and yeah. one of the battlegrounds of this struggle is, is artistic territory, conceptually but also even physically, uh, yeah. in, having a room to work in and the um, space of your own to work. So there's, there's real battles and struggles over who who gets the territory, who yields the territory, whose talent is worth the space. And there's a certain point you realise, and you've spoken about this before, I think, that the, by moving away from fiction you were ceding that territory and then you've moved out of the home as a workspace and, and ceded that territory as well. Mm. And you did seem quite conscious of that at times in the entries. I did, I did seem conscious, you say? Yeah, sometimes. Yeah, well, it was burning a hole in me. <laughs> Night and day. It seems to me that see, when I look back now and having done the third diary and now uh, I go back and look at some of the previous ones, I'm enlightened all over again because, because now I can see the sort of strands of the history of the relationship. But um, certain assumptions were made at the beginning uh, and I went along with them. The, one of the things that amazed me when I look back at, at that period, how I um, sort of allowed certain things to be the case and allowed them to be established as our customs. And once they were set in concrete, I was stuffed, to put it crudely. I could not fight on that. Sometimes I didn't. You see, the thing, it's, the thing is this. I had always, because I started writing when I had a, a child, uh, and I lived in a sort of, you know, hippie house where there was always a band playing in another room, and so I couldn't really work at home. And so I used to work down at the state library and I'd take my daughter to school, to kinder and school, and, and I'd work at the library. And I got into the habit of working outside the house, and it suited me, you know, it was good, I liked it. But uh, it wasn't a rigid thing, you know, I didn't have to go to work. If there were days when I didn't feel like going to the library, I'd just lie on my bed and read all day or, you know, do a bit of housework or cook something. But um, uh, V in the diary, my husband, my ex-husband, um, he had always worked at home and he took it for granted that home was his workplace. And it wasn't just the room in which he worked. He didn't want anyone else in the building. And it's it, it sort of, you know, I when I was presented with this conundrum, I, you see, this is where we get to the Phyllis Rose thing. Then love came in and blurred. I thought, oh, yeah, of course I can, you know, it's so marvellous. And, and I've always worked outside and it's okay, I'll rent some shitty little place over in Bondi Junction and, and, and freeze in winter and burn up in summer. And uh, and I, I just kind of, but but it was like a little, I think somewhere in the diary I say to, to V, this being banished from the house every day is like a little stone in the bottom of me and it's always there. And I can go for months without it bothering me. And sometimes it really starts to bug me. And we could not mm. resolve this. It, it was, I think, basically, it's a territorial struggle over literal territory that was really about 
you know, our rivalry as writers. Mm. And so he wouldn't move. We all go into relationships with certain, um, saying these are the parameters that we have accepted by entering into this, right? And then it's taken me a long time to understand that you're allowed to change those things at some point. But that's another story. So um, I want to just go back briefly to the psychoanalysis because that is completely riveting to me when I read about that. Um, And it's also in the diaries, of course, of great interest to you and also a point of conflict in the marriage at various points. One of the things that happens in the psychoanalysis is, is the investigation of dreams. And as you may know, I am I am kind of obsessed with dreams. What do you think it does for for the diaries and for any kind of writing to to draw up these things from our dreams? Long before I ever thought of, even knew that there was such a thing as therapy, or that there was a sort of you know a tradition of talking about dreams, I already liked them and liked um, I liked trying to write them down, and and they're really hard to write mm. down, to, to get that this straight, this sort of mysterious irrationality of a dream and it's the purity of its mood sometimes and and, and the, the fabulous images that, that the psyche kind of comes up with. I remember another shrink that I was going to for a while, he said, aren't dreams amazing? He said the details they think up was almost as if it's this little factory in there that's churning out this astonishing imagery that's so powerful and wild. And actually, V was a very sort of anti-dreams. That's one thing he said. He said every he said if I'm reading a book and there's a dream, you know, he said I just turn the page. I thought, what? How can you turn your back on this magnificent gift that's been given to you of seething, massive imagery that's always trying to reach your conscious mind? Yeah, I do. You find that it's hard to use them. Uh, well, I've always thought, you know, you're not allowed to use them because of responses like that. But now I'm just going, fuck it, I'm putting them in. Because Yeah, that's the spirit. Uh, yeah. It's about the compression. You know, you have to be able to write them in that way that they are like a little glowing bit of kryptonite or something. Because <laughs> you never go through the whole dream. You just have little glimpses of the dreams. But, but I, I get to the point where, you know, I used to write them down in a sort of super Jungian way that went on for about four pages and they were really boring to read. But the ones the ones that are in the diary, um, you know, when I wrote them down, uh, they were just boiled down to their, their little nub, you know, their little essence. And uh, they just seem to sort of kick ass, you know, and, and sometimes when you've got a lot of dreary outside events going on and suddenly there's a dream sitting there. It really is like this. Like, like you say, it's a little like it's a hot coal. Yeah. And to, to get that hot coal into the fabric is just um, completely thrilling to me. It's it's probably the hardest thing in writing is to get, get a dream into words where it, it sort of radiates its meaning but you couldn't, like, make a list of what its meaning points were. Yeah. I think and it's so... Yeah, potent. Um, well, that brings me to another thing about rhythm because you use these tiny little glimpses and um, little fleeting observations in a very a very skillful way through this book because you're writing this book that is quite, you know, it's distressing at times to read. And, and I, I was really um, enthralled by the way that you, you would have maybe quite a, you know, sizable passage about some big point of struggle and, and very, uh, you know, hard bit 
to to read. And then there's a switch in the rhythm. So you do this kind of sudden, you, you know, and you just said they kick ass. You get a little kick by somehow um, bringing in often a very a neutral sort of humble little observation. I've just got an example here. Um, on page 69, they've had a description of a fight and a struggle between the two of you. And then the next entry, and that's sort of, you know, quite a big chunk. And then the next entry is this. But the sea booms patiently all night long. Light comes and kookaburras start to shout with laughter. Magpies stream forth their ecstasy. So I wondered if you could talk about the rhythm of how you have edited the book together, that there's this sort of energy that keeps going, even through passages that, you know, are quite, if you linger too long, you know, it could weigh you down, but it, it never does that. Well, that's another thing that I actually really love is cutting and throwing stuff out. The two things I, I, I love the most about working on my own stuff later, uh, cutting and juxtaposition, what you put next to what. And that that's something that I, I, I've learnt more about that from the, the times when I've actually taught writing or when I'm, you know, helping somebody else with a piece of writing. It's uh, It goes back to that business of trusting the reader. Can I trust the reader to make these leaps you know when you make a cut in a, in a piece of writing and suddenly the, this electric current just goes zap and the, the two bits that zap together were previously sort of muffled by some some boring shit that you'd left in in the middle and um, I, I learned that from practicing my you know doing it myself in in writing books but also just you know watching how people people who are inexperienced writers, how they, it's really hard for them to do that. Mm. It, it's this thing that Hemingway says, I think, somewhere in um, in that book of his called uh, A Movable Feast, which is full of interesting stuff about how he learned to write. Um, he says you cut the thing out, but the reader will still sense that it was there, but you don't have to leave it there. And so that in itself is a, a huge act of trust in a reader. You can say, look, I'm going to cut this bit out and, and you, I'm, I want you to leap from that cliff edge to that cliff edge and not worry about all, all that sea that's down the bottom. Just jump. Trust me and jump. Mm. And that's, I think, um, what gives gives writing that sort of charge of energy that keeps going. You've, I mean, when you think about somebody like Raymond Carver, you know, where it's just slashed to the bone and, I, gosh, I loved his stuff. And I know that that slashing to the bone was not done by him. It was done by his ferocious and terrifying editor, but I learnt a lot, lot from that about how little you need to have on the page for there still to be that zing that carries people forward. It's a it's a risk that you take in leaving stuff out that energizes the whole. Thing. Yes, you've got to take the risk, and what the risk is is trusting the reader, trusting the reader to be to go with you to take the risk that you're taking. Someone, I just remember this afternoon, someone once said to me, all modern stories are about the move from captivity to freedom. So, you know, when you see someone in a terrible situation, you want them to get out of it. So how conscious were you of, of watching that shape emerge, you know, from these diaries of, of life that is generally feels quite shapeless, you know, as it's being lived? Mm. Mm. Well, this yeah, the, you're right. This th this third diary has got it's got a, almost it's it's almost got a plot. Uh, 
I mean, it, it almost reads like a novel because it's it, it only covers four years, whereas the earlier ones would cover more like six or seven years. And this one, it's, I mean, you know, you can feel the disaster coming or you can feel what turned out not to be a disaster in the long run. But but I, I didn't know how I was going to get out of it. I thought, you know how you're writing a book and you think, how the fuck can I get out of this? This What am I reaching for? What What's the end point? I needed to have a, a light that I was slogging towards through this sewer. And I thought that my light was going to be the day that I met Maria Cinque in the toilets at the Canberra oh. Supreme Court. I thought I was going to go right on past the end of the marriage and onto the things that happened to me afterwards. And I, you know, in the despair and, and sort of suffering that I was reliving in this end of this thing, I I, I just, Maria Cinque, who for any, she's the mother of Joe Cinque in that book, Joe Cinque's Consolation. And she was like this figure. She was this figure of power that I was slogging towards. And, I mean, I don't know if I'll ever be able to explain this to her, but I'd like to thank her thank her for standing there as a stable figure that I could strive towards. I, could, I guess she was a sort of mother figure really in a way. In the middle of the book and in the middle of all this real agony that you're going through, you go on a trip to Antarctica and then you write that fantastic essay called Regions of Thick-Ribbed Ice, which is just, I remember reading it at the time and being just floored by it. But on that trip, you go on a walk, a mountain sort of climb, a glacier with another woman, and you are just elated by the landscape and the and the height and the climb. And, and by stepping aside, you know, temporarily from this great struggle at home. And you have this exalted moment, and this is what you say in the diary. I raved out loud as I came down the loose-surfaced humps in a crouch, knees flexed, both hands spread. Give me another 20 years, Lord. I swear I'll use every minute. I'll never grow so old again. Give me 25 more years. So you have had 23 more years, and I wondered how you feel now about the use of your minutes in those intervening 23 years. <laughs> I keep thinking about that line in the Shakespeare sonnet, summer's lease has far too short a date. <laughs> Well, you know, I should have asked for 30 years or maybe 40. <laughs> but I've certainly they these years have been the happiest years of my life, I think, since since I um I sort of battled my way through that experience. And I because being a grandmother has been uh, an extraordinarily joyful and wonderful experience to me. And yeah, I've found that things I wanted to write had a validity that perhaps I didn't think they did before and I feel I, I, I feel I, I realized at the end of that relationship that that was it for me and me and guys I thought okay I've given it my best shot and there's something about me and there's something about what happens between me and guys that ends in misery and suffering so I'm going to pass on it from now on and I have never regretted that that decision well it wasn't even a decision it was just a natural thing that happened in my life and so yeah those uh, my prayer was answered my prayer on the path to the glacier was answered well that is a beautiful thing and we're all so glad that your prayer was answered um <laughs> I want to read everything you write for the next 30 years 
I'm going to hand back to Chris now, but I hope, Helen, that next time we see each other, it's actually across the table in person and we can talk online in that case. Thank you. Thanks, Charlotte. It was a pleasure. Remember that we're all in that that bar and we've all, uh, in honour of Helen, drank a martini. So I want you now to toast Helen and to thank her so much for being a voice of honesty and integrity and such kindness, Helen, such kindness. Thank you. And to you, Charlotte, thank you for asking those questions so beautifully, so astutely. And to all of you here, on behalf of readings and on behalf of text, and indeed on behalf of Charlotte and Helen, thank you so much for joining us. We were very lucky, all of us, to be part of this. Good night, everyone. Keep reading. Bye, everyone. Goodbye. You can stream previous episodes of The Readings Podcast on our website, where you'll also find all kinds of bookish recommendations, plenty of great books, music, film and TV. You can also sign up to e-news or to receive our free monthly print newsletter, The Readings Monthly. Production for this podcast was by me, Nico Callaghan. The show's music is by Tom Hoskins. All of our podcasts are recorded and produced on the lands of the Kulin Nation. We respectfully acknowledge the traditional owners of this land and that sovereignty was never ceded. <laughs>